We are honored today to have Dr. Joel Furman join us in this episode, Fast Food Genocide, The Resistance Lives. We will discuss the effects of the standard American diet on personal and planetary health. But first, we'd like to give you a little background on our esteemed guest. Dr. Joel Furman is a board-certified family physician, a seven-time New York Times bestselling author, an internationally recognized expert on nutrition and natural healing, specializing in preventing and reversing disease through nutritional methods. Dr. Furman is the president of the Nutritional Research Foundation, is on the faculty of Northern Arizona University's Health Sciences Division. He coined the term nutritarian to describe a nutrient-dense eating style designed to prevent cancer, to slow aging, and extend lifespan. As a native of Yonkers, New York, Dr. Furman is a world-class, a former world-class figure skater who has advised uh, professional and Olympic athletes, sports medical committees, and athletic trainers about maximizing performance and preventing injury. He has appeared on radio and television and may be best known for his PBS specials, which have raised over $50 million for public television. Among his New York Times bestsellers are the books, The End of Heart Disease, The End of Diabetes, and Superimmunity, Eat for Life is what was published in 2020. We will here focus a bit on his 2018 book, Fast Food Genocide, with research and contributions by Robert B. Phillips. Dr. Furman has also collaborated on a number of articles for medical journals, including Open Journal of Preventative Medicine and Alternative Therapies in Health and Medicine. And I believe you are joining us now from San Diego. Is that right, Dr. Furman? That's right. I live here now. You do live there now. And that's where he operates the Eat to Live Retreat, a residential facility where people from around the world come to stay for four to 12 weeks to recover from a range of conditions like cardiovascular disease, autoimmune disease, and food addiction. So uh, thank you for taking time to speak with us today, Dr. Furman. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. Now, uh, before we get into some of the grim statistics and the ways that our audience can empower themselves to evade the traps that are sort of set for us out here in the foodscape, could you uh, tell us how you uh, got into medicine and this nutritional focus, kind of the beginnings of your journey? I went to medical school with the specific intent to be a physician specializing in nutrition. So I, I kind of had a passion for this type of career before I started going to medical school. But before that, I was on the world team in figure skating, and then I worked in my father's shoe business who had a chain of 12 shoe stores in the New York area. And, I, and, um, and my father was overweight and sickly, and he started reading books, um, natural hygiene books by Herbert Shelton and tried to lose weight and eat healthier and get his health in better shape. So I read the books with him and started researching and reading about nutrition and, and staying well when I was a teenager, which I think aided me and um, aided us, myself, my sister and I as a pair team skating for the United States, not getting sick and increasing, you know, and just never getting ill and never getting colds, you know, so we watched our diet when we were competing. But I really, my exposure to that early um, world made me learn that cancers don't have to happen and that you don't have to have asthma and rheumatoid arthritis and colitis and, and headaches and and diabetes and blood pressure, these diseases that afflict Americans are the diseases of nutritional ignorance. And it should be reading, writing, arithmetic, 
and nutritional science taught in grade school because nutrition is the most powerful um, factor affecting our health and happiness throughout our whole life. And right now, not only are we, not only this book, Fast Food Genocide, describing the increase in depression and anger and frustration and mental illness and the growth of um, poor, you know, dysthymia, which means people have no excitement about living and passions anymore. There, it's ruining that nutrition is ruining not just the body, but their brains. And how many people you know who've had a cancer diagnosis or a heart attack or a stroke? It's our whole population dies of these diseases that are no, that are don't have to have happen. So what I'm saying right now is that we have this unprecedented opportunity in human history where we have these foundational studies in nutritional science of the last decade. And I've reviewed about 30,000 of those studies, 30,000 studies to come to the realization that we have the information to win the war on cancer, heart attacks, strokes, and dementia right now. And it's on our plates. It's what we put in our mouth predominantly. And so the opportunity is people can control their health destiny and live longer. But with the excitement and passion about this knowledge, I decided to, for my father to sell the shoe business so he could retire. And I went back to the postgraduate pre-med program at Columbia and then to the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine to pursue a career as a physician specializing in nutrition. I did not get that training though in medical school. I had to get a conventional medical training and then, and then pursue my own research and training um, to be to specializing in this field in addition to my specialty in, in family practice. So I combined this nutritional bent with like treating sprained ankles and suturing people's wounds and taking out, um, you know, removing skin lesions. And, you know, so I, 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 I did everything as a family physician, but I also, of course, my major bent was that people would come to me from all over wanting to get well. And I would use nutrition, excellent nutrition with the right type of supplements and the right type of interventions to have them get rid of their asthma, not treat it the rest of their life with a drug, get rid of their headaches. They don't have to be on drugs, reverse their diabetes. So they can be non-diabetic, not go for bypass surgery or angioplasty, but melt away the heart disease and have them be breathing in and throw away their blood pressure drugs and their statins and get off their medications and get the blood pressure back to normal again. So the excitement about my career and my end was came to fruition because I'm tremendously passionate and, and excited about watching people reverse disease and get well. And do you think there's been any improvement since, since your days in medical school on uh, the training on nutrition with doctors or still pretty much the same situation or only just beginning to really uh, include it at a level that it should be? Well, I could, let me address that in three different ways. Number one, I don't care that much personally that doctors know nutrition because that's like saying to a person, when you have lung cancer, the doctor should tell you to quit smoking. Well, the, or when you go to a doctor and you have heart disease, he, can, he should get you off the salt in your diet. No, you should not never smoke to begin with. You shouldn't quit smoking after you go to a doctor and get lung cancer. The time you go to a doctor with a disease, who cares that he knows about nutrition? You've been eating wrong for 30 years. You should never develop that disease. You shouldn't have been salting your food at the beginning when you was a child through your whole life. You shouldn't have been smoking your whole life. You shouldn't have been eating an American diet your whole life. Why wait to a doctor till you have advanced heart disease or early stage cancer or some serious autoimmune condition for them to tell you to intercede with a nutritional intervention? So I'm kind of 
um, advocating that it should be reading, writing, arithmetic, and nutritional science, and we have to have nutritional science education taught throughout the school, the educational process, and not be the isolated um, knowledge base of physicians who just are glorified pharmacists who mostly either do surgeries or write drugs for people. Um, and they don't care about nutrition because they're just giving, because that takes too long. And their, their, their practices aren't designed to spend time teaching and educating people. They just want to have people run through the, the, the door. No. On the other hand, as a founding member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, I've, with, where we'd have a convention of 20 or 30 people. And now these conventions have tens, thousands of people, and there are thousands of doctors across the United States now that are even not only members of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, but are board certified who use nutrition and other lifestyle modalities as a primary intervention in their medical practice. So there's a, yes, there's an explosion of doctors doing this now, but it's still less than 1% of physicians. It's still a very small percent. I'm talking about you know, you know, 10 or 15,000 physicians, which is a small drop in the bucket, you know. And so, so what, and the third thing, of course, is I'm saying that we have to integrate what we've learned and advocate for the population at all stages of the population. PTA groups, adult education, media, government, politics, educational system, medical office, you know, doctor's education. It should be, it, it, it's not just the, the information should be in the, under the hands of physicians who get make their money on people being sick, which predominantly have a sick care system, which is treating diseases without getting people well. My type of practice gets people well so they don't need medical care anymore. When they come, even if, they, even if they're a food addict and they have like advanced heart disease and diabetes and they're 100 pounds overweight, they come to my, if they come here to my, in San Diego and they spend a few months and lose 50 pounds, they go home with the knowledge how to continue to lose weight. They're no longer diabetic and no longer have high blood pressure. And they don't really need doctoring anymore or drugs anymore. They're free from the need of medical care. I'm trying to have people not be medically dependent so they don't need doctors to teach them. Because generally speaking, I'm saying physicians don't know much more about healthcare than the average truck driver, librarian, and postman does, and plumber. You might as well just ask your plumber about nutrition. You'll get the same just as much because they're getting their information from the media. They really haven't studied it, and they're not experts in it. And if they became experts in it, it wouldn't change that much because we have to have everybody be an expert, not just the doctors. Well, if it's still only about 1% of doctors, you can imagine what a smaller percentage that is as far as the average population. Uh, and if they got it in school, elementary school and all the way up, it would be more embedded in their, their practice or their way of thinking about medicine before they ever got to graduate school. Absolutely. And I'm not, I'm not sure the 1% figure, by the way, I just threw that out there. I, it's probably maybe more like one in a thousand, like point, more realistically, 15,000 doctors out of the whole mass of doctors in America. I don't know. It's probably more like a one you know, 0.1% or a one thousandth of all doctors was probably more accurate, but I don't know that figure. Just don't hold me to that number. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, in the, uh, you know, the older Chinese and uh, Ayurvedic Indian systems mm -hmm. and kind of in the, uh, the quotes of Hippocrates, but let thy food be thy medicine. It was more an intrinsic uh, component of whatever you would call it, some kind of a consultancy, if not medical in intervention as we think of it or practice it today. 
just a way of setting people back into balance because even before industrialized food systems and all that we had, people would get out of balance. You have people that have certain allergies, food allergies and different things, and you'd have to narrow that down on what's affecting their system. So it seems like it should definitely be an intrinsic kind of first stage of when somebody's ailing, you survey, what are you eating? What's your lifestyle? Oh, absolutely. Lifestyle medicine is the foundation of correct medical care. Any doctor who doesn't practice lifestyle medicine doesn't have the right tools in their tools box and probably shouldn't even take care of patients. I think medical care is, has actually evolved into being more harmful. Overall, it's harmful because well, the first thing you learn in medical school and pharmacology is drugs are toxic and their cumulative effect is to increase the risk of cancer. And the second thing is, is doctors, by giving people medications instead of changing the factors in their lives that are causing disease, enable people to continue to, on their addictive and self-destructive habits. They, so the person that's going to fast food restaurants and eating steak and French fries or whatever they're eating that's creating their disease, they go to their doctor with diabetes and heart disease and high blood pressure and the doctor gives them pills. And what do the pills do? They allow them to think they're okay because now their blood pressure looks normal or their blood cholesterol looks normal. And they think they're okay. They're getting a false degree of assurance because they're still deteriorating at a rapid rate if they continue the same diet they're on. So the doctor enabled them to stay on the same pathway of self-destructive eating behavior leading to a premature death and has almost a, a, an, almost a not only a a worthless effect on extending lifespan, but a negative effect because we never had any medications to give people. Then the doctor would be forced to say, "You got to drop thirty pounds. You have to, you know, stop salting your food, stop eating fried foods, eat mostly fruits and vegetables, have a salad and a vegetable bean soup for lunch. Go go walk for an hour after dinner, and let's see you come back next week. You know, a few pounds lighter without the salt and fried fats in your diet, and let's see if we can get you getting well. So even before that, insulin was invented." Um, type 2 diabetics were forced to you know, exercise and change their diet to get well. Now we give them drugs that make them gain weight and become more diabetic. So it's all, so the, the whole, if you put it all in a big pot, you'd realize the effect of medical care is not that, it has not been extending lifespan. It's been perhaps um, interfering with the ability of humans to live a long, happy life because we, we're, we're, it takes the emphasis on, off um, self-care as the primary focus of healthcare, self-care. Yeah, and I, I'm becoming a lot more attuned with it from mm. getting older and the experience uh, I talked to you about, my dear friend Richard dying of cancer last year. Mm -hmm. um, the doctors, the, the oncologists literally said to me, um, it doesn't matter what you feed him, just give him more because he was wasting and he was losing weight. Right. And they accused, you know, me of not taking care of him, not feeding him enough. I actually even sick adult protective services, which quickly determined that I, they hooked me up with the nutritionist. And they said, no, you're doing everything correct. And I had to look up the term and Google it, cachexia, C-A-C-H-E-X-I-A, which is where the body starts feeding on itself. No matter how much nutrition right. that you put to the system, they continue to waste. and so. This doctor is making me feel like I'm not doing what I should be doing and literally has no, no prescription at all and says it doesn't matter what you feed him, just give him more, which gets into some of what you talk about in the book, the idea of calories. 
as as what you need to pay attention to when all calories are not the same. Right. You know, I, you know, the book we're focusing on this idea of the fast food genocide, meaning that fast food is not just food in a fast food restaurant, but it's also food that can be accessed and digested rapidly or eaten fast and enters the bloodstream fast. It's concentrated calories with no significant micronutrient load. And I'm saying there's a few things. Number one, there's a dose-dependent relationship between low nutrient calories and shortened lifespan and almost every disease under the sun, but particularly with depression. And it used to be one in 500 Americans used to be mentally ill. Now it's one in five. And they're on drugs for depression. And we're saying here that you know, even two servings a week of fast food or commercial baked goods like croissants and donuts and cookies and, and bagels, because they're not food, they're drugs. These processed carbohydrates and products made with white flour and sweeteners enter the bloodstream as pure sugar. And the spike in sugar in the bloodstream damages brain cells and also makes your brain dopamine insensitive, the same areas of the brain that are stimulated by narcotics and opiates are stimulated by the rush of sugar in the bloodstream and the rush of oil in the bloodstream. Anytime you see a, the caloric spike in the bloodstream, it can stimulate the brain. And these people now, and I'm saying these people, I'm meaning most Americans, the majority of people in America, are addicted to consuming a huge caloric load that they don't need. And their bodies grow bigger and grow overweight. And so, and I'm also saying there's no such thing as a healthy, overweight person. Our whole population is addicted, and 89% of Americans are overweight by my standards. By, by I'm, I'm classifying 89% of Americans as overweight using a BMI of 23 as the demarcation line between normal weight and overweight. Because the US government says, the health authorities say 77% of Americans are overweight because they use a BMI of 25 as the demarcation line, but there's no long lived centered, healthy centenarians with BMIs above 23, it's all, all along the people. And actually the optimal BMI for a male is below 22 and for a female is below 21. So 23 is certainly um, permissive enough. But in any case, um, most Americans are overweight. They're addicted to overeating calories. It makes them prone to depression. And they don't just have two servings a week, they have 20 servings a week, some people. But when they don't get depressed, they become dysthymic, which means they're not excited about and passionate about living. They're not looking for happiness around them. They're not excited about um, things in their life they can accomplish. They just wind up being in a rut. And the food makes their brain in this rut of just living for addictive substances. And I'm also saying and describing the book that white flour and sugar is the gateway drug to alcoholism and more serious drug use. And there's, a, there's also a scientific studies evidence with a dose dependent relationship between the consumption of candy, commercial baked goods and fast food and being addicted to drugs or being arrested for a criminal, for a drug-related criminal offense. So all these things are affected. It makes people more angered, more violent, less ability to, to weigh evidence, to jump to conclusions, and to um, not be the proper version of, not be the full version of themselves. And actually, being in any kind of addict, particularly a drug addict, makes you more narcissistically consumed with your own needs and your own addictive needs and not with doing good for others and, and trying to make the world a better place. It, it makes you more, you're not the best father, the best, um, the best neighbor, 
the best community member, the best person protecting the planet for future generations. You just become narrowly involved with, with your desire for instant gratification through drugs or food or whatever it may be. And I discussed in my book, Fast Food Genocide, the history of this from the world, from even from the Civil War, when um, even when we're talking about the lynching of blacks and the Jim Crow laws where blacks were driven out of the South and the violence against them was contributed to by the poor nutrition and by the spread of pellagra, a disease caused by niacin deficiency, which can cause violence, aggression, and even homicides, suicide and homicidal behavior, makes people like half crazy. And that the, Amer the medical profession didn't know pellagra, which causes a redneck, by the way, it's the original term rednecks. People were very violent and, and but there was because of nutritional deficiencies because their diet was mostly corn and pork and molasses. They didn't have enough vegetables in their diet. So, but in any case, um, the medical profession denied, they didn't know it was nutrition. They thought these were genetic defects in individuals and they, and they put most of them in prison. They imprisoned a lot of these people with pellagra. It wasn't until after the 19, I think about 1915, when a physician started feeding them, having them grow vegetables and feeding these prisoners vegetables, when they found that they were helping their brains become normal again, and they can let these people out of the prison and not have them no, and have recidivism with repeat crimes because they started feeding them vegetables. And then, of course, but we're seeing this today all over again. We're seeing an ex explosion in mental illness, explosion in anger, um, and and violence and and lack of ability to weigh evidence and think clearly in people that are marginally nutritionally deficient from the growth of the fast food restaurant and processed food industry. And now instead of not eating vegetables and, and eating molasses and corn and pork, now they're eating fast food and bread and bagels and pizza and burgers and French fries and Coke and soda. And, and they're not eating, and they're still not eating vegetables, enough sufficient vegetables, which is destructive to your brain, not just your body. You know? So if we have a, a vicious cycle going on, that's, that is very destructive to the future of the human race, because now we have a growing number of people that don't care about anything except their own immediate needs and in the process, they can destroy the planet, destroy the climate, pollute the environment, and, and, and perhaps cause the extinction, extinction of the human race, but essentially making the world a much more unsavory place and difficult place to produce food for future generations. And we're dead. You know, we should be caring for the... So, it's a, so we have to care for ourselves, certainly. And we have this opportunity to be healthier and happier by eating better, but we all, and not have to worry about diseases and get cancer, but to think more clearly and to be more excited about living, and then also obviously be able to have more feeling, compassion, and and think and, and plan for the future and much better if we have people, of course, um, you know, more aware of what's going on in the food environment. So I'm saying food is a major part of this formula leading to our own self-destruction. Yeah, um, and the historical examples that you get into in the in the book are kind of I, I don't think I've seen it stitched together anywhere else in that way of how it affects culture and politics and yeah. your use of the term genocide uh, surely not used lightly may have some bristling at the idea that junk food and burger chains don't amount to anything like an attempt to eradicate an ethnic or cultural group in whole or in part via a concerted policy of some faction 
for the state. But as we see this backlash against demographic shifts in population, uh, making up the so-called browning of America, which projects the end of a white majority in the U.S. in the coming decades, as the dog whistles become bullhorns and attempts to create social equity are actively fought by a formerly ascendant cast of people that have long been complacent about the systemic racism. Uh, you know, they're targeting their political rivals, uh, fine with police brutality, uh, doing the voter suppression and the demonization of their political rivals. Uh, I mean, can can anyone really deny the massive deprivation by design that's baked into the American pie chart that is underlying all of these cultural problems? That, that's true. I mean, that's it's interesting. I know it's hard. It's a hard concept for people to grasp. But we're saying our, our country is based on, obviously, personal freedom and the, this opportunity we have in America to achieve our dream. You know, to, and and we don't give this person the opportunity to achieve their dream if they don't have the foundation of good nutrition and healthy food, because they their brains can't develop normally. They can't be as an intelligent, creative, compassionate, and they're they're not they're a mere fraction of who they could have become unless they're fed healthfully. So whether it's food deserts on the on the south side of Chicago, or whether it's people living on fried food and in, in in New Orleans and within the cancer stroke belt, where most we have more deaths, more murders, more criminal behavior, but also um, not just poor education, but more um, criminality, but but more, but dramatically increased risk of strokes, heart attacks, diabetes, obesity. And I'm saying food is inherently at the core of the this these tragedies. I'll I'll speak to large medical groups and I'll say, raise your hand if you've been shot by a bullet or stabbed by a knife, you know, and like, and there'll be, a, you know, 500 people in the audience and maybe one person will raise their hand. And I'll say, hmm, not, that's not so dangerous a neighborhood, I guess you're living, but what about anybody you know in your family or your, you know, your acquaint, your close acquaintances that have been, um, have a cancer diagnosis or have a heart attack or a stroke and everybody's hand will go up. And I'll say, and that's a neighborhood you want to stay living in? where almost everybody around you has either a heart attack or a stroke or gets cancer. That means you're just living your life with the expectation of having a tragedy befall you. There's, there was no cancers and heart attacks in early, in early humans and in the natural world. And, you know, the first, even cancer was hardly mentioned in the scientific literature before the 17th century, when they found mostly scrotal and testicular cancers in men who worked as chimney sweeps, who were bound around smoke all day. You know, people that, that grew their own food. And, you know, even after World War II, even 1940s, the cancer rates were less than about one-tenth where they are today. But in those days around World War II, the U.S. government was still advocating people grow gardens and grow 40%, grow food. And it was about 44% of the American food consumption pie was, was food that people raised on their own homes. And they people ripped up their lawns and planted vegetables, and because men were going to war, and they wanted the farmers that, that those um, foods to be shipped overseas and to be packaged for the soldiers, and we wanted people in America that to grow a lot of their own food. And even and between between 1900 and 1950, we saw a huge amount of the American population, the American calories, be consumed by people a lot of food that people could grow themselves. And then between, of course, 19, 1945 and 1950 on, we saw the explosion of the processed food movement. 
and the growth of commercial food made by food scientists to get people hooked. And that that exploded into fast food restaurants and processed food and convenience stores and where people can eat foods out of bags and boxes and cans. And then we have then we see a deterioration of the of the of the humans in this society and spreading this to other parts of the world, which leads to a deterioration of our, you know, of our health, our happiness and our future well-being and living in fear. And you need medical doctors now. You need an explosion of medical care to care for these sick people. And you can't even make doctors fast enough and hospitals fast enough to care for all the sick people that are. And, and, and COVID is a perfect example of that. COVID is harmless to a person who's truly healthy. To a person eating junk food and fast food and processed foods, they're going to be ripped apart by it because a lot of we can talk about the reasons, but everybody knows that COVID hits people who are have other comorbidities, overweight, diabetic, poor diets, you know, uh, and the healthy people don't get affected negatively by it. But with the, but but of course, that's just the, whether it's pneumonia, even being 20 pounds overweight increases your risk of later life pneumonia. We're talking here that um, science, nutritional science has made it clear that we're a primate and we're, and we're dependent on a high intake of vegetables for good health. And if you don't like vegetables and don't like greens, then you can't be normal. You might as well live close to a hospital. You know, look at, look at women who are told, women are told of childbearing ears to take folate pills. So they have normal babies without birth defects, without neural tube defects. That is so ridiculous because folic acid they take in a pill form is another medication. It's not real. It's not a, something found in food. Food gives us folate, not folic acid. So we're giving women folic acid instead of having the, the real thing, which is folate found in, found in vegetables and beans. So instead of telling women of childbearing years that we're a vegetable dependent animal, if you don't eat green vegetables, you can't have a normal baby, you're gonna have neural tube defects. So instead of doctors telling people to eat normally, they give them a synthetic drug that's like the folate found in green vegetables. So now we're gonna close up neural tube defects so people not want to eat green vegetables. So now we have other birth defects, heart defects, autism, and of course the link between childhood cancer and the lack of green vegetables in the mother's diet prior to conception and during pregnancy which has been facilitated by the medical profession telling people to take folic acid because now they don't eat because they missed the opportunity to educate people and they need to take green vegetables. And also the fact that it's not just the diet during pregnancy, but it's, it's even years before pregnancy that affects the health of the child. And now the number one cause of death in children is other than accidents is acute blastocytic leukemia or type of childhood cancer, which is linked to the mother's diet, even during pregnancy, but before conception that causes these issues when the child is born. So we, we, we're just gone in such an absolutely insane direction in healthcare. And we're not, re we, you know, who asks the question, well, why would the human body need to take a synthetic folic acid pill to have a normal baby? What's, what is there in the diet that we're doing wrong that would make us have to take a pill? It's so ridiculous. You know, the whole thing is, is ridiculous. Nobody even thinks rationally. And we don't, they don't look at the you know, downside long-term effects of giving people this folic acid pill. And by the way, folic acid is linked to cancer. The folic acid pills that people take and their vitamins are linked to higher risk of breast and prostate cancer and colon cancer, but mostly breast and prostate cancer because it's not a normal substance. And I'm saying we're a green vegetable dependent animal. If you want to be normal, you have to have a high intake of green vegetables because the intraepithelial lymphocytes, the part of the immune system that's built around the villi and the small intestines, under the wall of the small intestines, 
is the defenders of the gates of the castle, defends toxins and poisons and viruses and bacteria, and you know whether it's COVID or any other virus, there the first defense is the body's immune system that surrounds the digestive tract. And that immune system atrophies and doesn't even function normally unless it's fueled by the growth of, green, of a lot of green vegetables in the diet. We're talking about both raw vegetables and cooked vegetables. And if you're listening to me here, I'd like you to write down this sentence, these like 10 words. Let me tell you what these 10 words are. I'm not sure if it's 10 words, but let me tell you what the words are. Raw vegetables have the most consistent and powerful association with the reduction of cancers of all types. So it's about 10 words. You could memorize those 10 words. Let me say it one more time. Raw vegetables, the consumption of raw vegetables have the most consistent and powerful association with the reduction of cancers of all types. So we're saying here that your, the, nutrition, the nutrient density of your tissues are proportional to the nutrient density of your diet. You have to eat a diet with a high nutrient bang per caloric buck in order to be healthy. We can't eat foods that do not contain nutrients like processed foods and animal products, which both are low nutrient foods. And I'm saying here, a, a bagel is like a piece of chicken because there's no phytochemicals or antioxidants. They're just source of calories. We have to consume large amounts of these foods that have the nutrients humans need to slow aging and to fight off disease. And I have this acronym, G-BOMBS. G-B-O-M-B-S, G-BOMBS, which helps people remember these six most powerful anti-cancer foods that they want them to eat in their diet almost every day. And they are, of course, green vegetables for the G, and greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds, like flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, sesame seeds. People don't realize the importance of these healthy um, of nuts and seeds, but particularly seeds. And I'm saying right now that most Americans and people in the Western world get most of their fat intake from oils and animal fats. And a nutritarian eating for longevity gets most of their fats from whole nuts and seeds. It's not walnut oil, use the whole walnut. It's not pistachio oil, use the whole pistachio nut. We're breaking the dressing out of the whole nut. Hemp seeds, sesame seeds, flax seeds, walnuts. We're eating fats from this nuts and seeds mixed in the salad to make a salad dressing. Not pouring the oil taken from that nut or seed because then you've lost all the lignans, the fibers, the phytochemicals and the anti-cancer effects. And plus the fact that when you eat nuts and seeds as your source of fat, the calories come in so slowly into the body that the body can preferentially burn them for energy. When you take the oil extracted from a seed or a, or a plant, it comes into the bloodstream so fast and spikes the calories into the blood with so many calories at one shot that it stimulates um, the apostat in the central nervous system and the opiate dopamine receptors in the brain to be an appetite stimulant and make people become addicted to concentrated calories. So I'm saying here that um, the nutrition in, in the modern world is so far away from the way people should be eating. We need a radical change in the way people eat to really solve some of these problems in our society. And is the, uh, the vegetable oils becoming oxidized, rancid? Is, is that a problem in itself? Because, I mean, it's, it, they're in everything. These vegetable oils are in every and anything that's in any way processed pretty much. Uh, yes. What are what are the uh, direct problems that that those cause, which is so pervasive in the average person's diet? 
That's correct. Even glycidal from the, the extraction chemicals for oils, the chemical extraction leaves glycidal residue, which is a toxin that's in baby formulas even for the oil they put in baby formulas. But of course, the oils have these toxins in them. But besides the fact when you heat an oil, you form more rancid and carcinogenic genotoxic and cytotoxic compounds, dangerous compounds from heating oils. That's why there's a relationship between fried foods and such a higher rate of cancer, particularly fried foods and, and, and Crohn's disease and colitis and autoimmune conditions. We have, a, a you know, a, so we're talking about people, you know, French fries and whatever it is you're frying in oil or cooking in oil, fried chicken, because obviously frying foods is very damaging. So yes, the, the idea of cooking in oil and, and, and heating oils and using oils is a recent phenomenon in human history. Don't forget, we're, you know, humans have been on this planet for hundreds of thousands of years. It's only the last thousand years, one of the hundreds of thousands of years, only the last probably few hundred years that we're using oils. Even, even people um, in the Mediterranean countries a hundred years ago hardly used much oil, very little, you know, as a total calorie, which has increased radically in the last in the last few generations. But in any case, but then in those days, people were walking behind a plow, working in the fields eight hours a day. Now they were sitting on computers, and the extra oil is making everybody fat. It's 120 calories a tablespoon. And the average American consumes 500 extra calories from oil. We're going to burn those calories off if you're sitting down, unless you have a physical job, unless you're a professional athlete, or you're digging ditches all day long, or, or working behind a plow. In the, you know, with a with an 800 pound plow and an ox up and down your fields for nine for 10 hours a day, there's no way you're going to keep your weight off if you're sitting around pouring oil over your food too. And people don't recognize how dangerous the fat on the body is too, because fat cells spew out um, cytokines, lipokines, and reactive oxygen species because they're not adequately perfused with blood supply. They don't go low oxygenated tissue. And the fat cells make you insulin resistant, so then make your glucose circulate higher and make your insulin production go higher and produce more estrogen, so they're hormonally setting you up for later for cancer. So we have the so we have people that are totally confused and misinformed about their bodies, and they think they can't lose weight. They think it's impossible because everything they try doesn't work because they don't really understand that they they don't unless they get enough nutrients in their tissues and eat enough vegetables, their appetite's going to be um, they're going to be like a calorie craving monster. They can't stop wanting to crave excess calories and feeling they need the extra calories for their to keep their energy up unless they fuel the body with enough high nutrient foods. So the diet industry has let them down too. There's all these um, fad and scam diets that don't work. Uh, is, is olive oil a, a better alternative as it's generally kind of portrayed in the semi-enlightened circles? I mean, when you start getting into this stuff, there's always recommendation, recommendations for and, and against, depending on which kind of guru you go to. Um, well, I do think smoking cigarettes is better than snorting cocaine. You know, but just because snorting cigarettes is better than cocaine doesn't mean I recommend cigarettes or we don't buy a car by comparing it to a junkyard wreck. Let me say, let me give you a direct answer now. Um, just because olive oil is a better oil than other types of oils, or maybe has um, is somewhat better, less dangerous. It's still not as good as eating a whole nut or a seed or a whole olive or a whole avocado or a whole, it's still the, the for example, the Prevamid study showed a 15% reduction in heart attack deaths when people used extra virgin olive oil instead of other fats like butter and other oils. They had an improvement in heart attack deaths when they switched to olive oil, but that went down by 15%. When they took the oil away and they had people use nuts and seeds instead of oil, their heart attack rates went in the group went down by 60%, not 15%. Basically speaking, 
Um, I'm saying that I'm saying making this radical statement that olive oil is a major factor creating can rates of breast cancer, for example, because it leads to pe women being overweight and overweight makes you produce more estrogen. So even though they think the olive oil might be a better oil than some other oil and better than animal fats or butter, it's still fattening. And the fact that it's that the fact that the consumption, the regular consumption of oil is preventing people from achieving an, an, a good, a healthy weight means it's dangerous. So it's so just because it's better than something else doesn't mean it's good if there's something else that's still better. It's always what you can compare it to. You know, eating eggs might be better than eating donuts. But that doesn't make eating eggs good. If you compare eating eggs to beans, beans are 10 times better than eating an egg as far as their ability to extend lifespan. So the eggs might be better than donuts. So it's all what you're comparing it to. So, so people are fooled. So the egg industry is going to promote all these studies comparing egg, you know, putting eggs in the diet where people are already eating tons of meat. So it doesn't matter they ate some extra eggs. But they're going to make studies. They're going to, you know, make them design not to show that eggs look too bad or the same thing. We could make anything not look too bad based on what we compare it to. But if we want to compare it to the best type of foods and the best diet, that's where you really got to delve into reading thousands of studies to see where the best long, the most longevity, the lowest rates of cancer, the longest lifespans occur, what foods are linked to longer lifespan and have the, have a, you know, a threshold effect that, you know, when you seal and, and, and we're talking here about, that's what we're talking about now is making the diet a, a higher degree of excellence, which then enables you not only to be healthier, but happier more at peace with yourself and more satisfied with the right amount of calories. So you don't have to be on a diet to lose weight. You're just enjoying the healthy foods you're eating and you're automatically losing weight because you're because now you've become, I could say, a health nut, which then I which I call a nutritarian. Actually, the word health nut's not bad because I'm telling people eat nuts and seeds. So health nut, right? It's a pretty good word, but nutritarian is my word that represents a person eating healthfully and moving towards their ideal weight if they're overweight. If you're overweight and not going down, not on the process of going down, you're not really on a nutritarian diet. Because if you were on a nutritarian diet and doing it right, and you're overweight, you'd be losing a little bit of weight each week as you're moving towards your ideal weight, or you'd be at your ideal weight, you know? Yeah, I've referred to you to some people that aren't as clued into this kind of things as a nutritarian evangelist, which could have its own pejorative connotations there, but as, you know, someone enthusiast you know bringing the good news to you <laughs> yeah i don't care what people call me i just want to get this message out because I, i've always been saying for decades that i don't have to change everyone in america but people deserve to know this information so they can make an educated choice because nobody else is telling it to them so it's like informed consent for a doctor you come in with high blood pressure and diabetes i'm saying put on drugs the rest of your life or give people an option that they don't have to be on drugs the rest of life and they can get totally well again if they change their diet and exercise and eat right. And I'm saying to you, and the doctors see in medical school in my training, the other doctors would say this. They would say, oh yeah, we know that works, but because people aren't gonna listen to you and it takes too much time and you're not gonna make a lot of money that way, it's just easier to give them a drug. And then I would say to them, it doesn't matter that they won't listen to me. It doesn't matter that if one out of 10 or one out of 100 will listen to you, that's not even the point. Because if it, was, if it was only one out of 100, I would still want to do it. Because then you're not giving people proper informed consent and you're taking away their potential ability to make a choice for themselves and you made the choice for them that they wouldn't want to do it. And that's not what the, that's that. So, you know, so to me, I'm, I'm, I'm that evangelist giving out people information and they could take it or leave it. You know what I mean? 
but at least I got it out there so people have the option to hear this and to make and to know they have a choice not to have a heart attack, not to have a stroke, not to get demented, not to get cancer and live a long life. And I'm saying the normal lifespan should be between 95 to 105 years old or actually 97 to 107 years old. And people should be able to live their to live near 100 years old with good mental faculties and physical abilities, and and not have their body deteriorate like it does in 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 America and in the fa- in the food deserts and people where where you have a lot of obesity and diabetes eating poorly. We have a tremendous years of potential life lost. There was one study that took overweight black diabetic women living in a food desert with poor food access. So here you have a a black diabetic overweight woman who might be 50 to 100 pounds overweight and her years of potential life loss was con- was calculated by the scientist as being 40 years of life loss that's how young these people were dying because of p- poor food access poor information poor education and 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 not being and being raised in an environment in a toxic food environment that's how critical this is compared to so and people don't realize there's tremendous differences of of lifespan even in America different places of America there's complete there's differences in lifespan differences in breast cancer incidences and there might be some countries around the world may have one fiftieth the amount of breast cancer that we have and we're taught oh it's genetic it's you know it's just the inevitable consequence of aging and the treatment is going to doctors and they don't really learn that well we're t- this is really part of it's it's what we how we live that determines these outcomes and how we live can prevent these outcomes too and so people need to have this information so they can make a choice they want to have breast cancer or not and they think that well mammograms is going to protect them you know that which detects something that's already cancer and by the time you get a positive mammogram the majority of those tumors have spread through the whole body and medical interventions and and the health and have very little to affect on on lifespan at that point so it's all just it's all just confusion in the in, in the masses you know well and, and i think that's one of the prime obstacles for a lot of people even those that are trying to align themselves with a better ethic be it ecologically or just health, let alone trying to address some kind of mental health concerns or some kind of chronic condition. But in 2020, COVID-19 came up as number three, uh, the number three in the top 10 causes of disease, heart disease and cancer being one and two. And so that's 20, over 20% of people dying of heart disease. So I guess that's one in five when you look around your family and your friends. Well, out of adults, it's close to it's more than thirty five percent of people who are over the age of sixty five. Um, more than thirty five percent die of heart attacks and strokes, cardiovascular disease. So it's um it's a leading cause of death in people over the age of sixty five, is heart attacks and stroke, cardiovascular disease, and it's it's totally preventable. So that yeah, is totally preventable. Yeah, so these about millions of people dying needlessly, millions and millions of people across America dying needlessly. It's like we only have our own people, our own war going on here against that heart attack and cancer causing foods. Of course, you know, the horror today, of course, of people dying and, and being tortured and killed in wars is still, cra- still insane and crazy and horrible. And just every day, I can't get over the fact that um, people are killing themselves, like in Ukraine, the, you know, it's just the Russian attack on Ukraine and just all this stuff is just absolutely insanity that we can't live in peace with each other and stop and help each other instead of hurting each other is so, so um, hard to bear, you know, that people are going to kill each other instead of helping each other. And you get so much pleasure in life from helping other people. 
and 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 that makes you happy and feel good about yourself when you're taking care of and being good for other people instead of fighting and kill trying to and kill each other. It's like wow, this is un, and 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 food has something to do with it too, you know. I mean, um, but something to do with it. But still, it's just crazy the way we've we've you, what humans can can travel and go in the wrong direction when their brains aren't working right, you know. It's a simpler solution to dominate than the complexities of cooperating. Is what mm-hmm. it seems to come down to. Yeah, just and, horrible. And these, uh, I guess it was, um, I think the USDA, their definition of a food desert is a low-income census tract with uh, little access to supermarkets and without and, and public transportation being a component of that. And these are the legacies and remnants of redlining you know, withholding investment from communities that created these ghetto situations that are now, even if it's not someone trying to target a race or something, there's these systemic leftover effects that continue to make it so acute in these minority populations. And so their numbers are much worse, as you were saying. And I mean, you're one of the few people that are out here trying to give some other solution, some other path, some other way, some way to address this. And you got into the, the history with the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was amazing when you talked about how the Nazis were looking into uh, superior nutrition, whereas the Americans started looking into kind of me- the mechanistic view of just providing more, maximizing the land, you know, the product of the land, more calories, and that the military industrialized the food system. I mean, can you speak on that as as one of the the prime factors? This and what is now just a corporate behemoth that is invested in this short term profit model, this myopic view that doesn't consider the collateral consequences on the planet. For the population, because as a corporation, you can make money off anything once you're huge, you, off of giving them the poison and off of treating them for the poison. Yes, it's very complicated. Getting down to, you know, we can talk about that, but the the what's going to what can save the what can help us all and save us is regenerative organic farming, where we're taking care of the soil. And I'm saying something different now and i'm saying that the quality of the food is proportional to the quality of the soil and the soil rich in organic matter is rich in insects bacteria fungi worms and you know it's natural plant material uh, i'm a big composter you know and um and you know saving weeds and food scraps and manure well, anyway making and making growing trees and vegetables and you know planting in other words um then there's something about your soul, about being part of nature, working with dirt and growing your own food that's so satisfying, you know, and I would never can even think of putting food from a fast, from a, like a chocolate chip cookie or a bagel at an airport into my mouth or a fast food in my mouth. You know, wouldn't even, how could I, that's like, you can't get 10 men to tie me down and to, for, to shoot me up with heroin and to put that food that people are eating in their mouth. I'm looking to go, don't you, you know, it's funny because my kids, I have four children that are adults now and they, when they were little kids, like four and five years, six years old, they could understand that people were attracted to these bad foods that were unhealthy. 
they could understand the, the, the tastes um, suck people in, but they couldn't understand why parents would keep encouraging their children to, to self-destruct. They could say, well, why are the parents bringing donuts to the soccer games? Why did the parents bring candy into the exercise class? Why did the parents, you know, don't they know it's unhealthy? Why are they hurt, trying to hurt and damage their kids? Don't they love their kids? And they'd say, yeah, they love their children. They just don't know any better. They, and they're, because they're food addicts as an adult, they, they're in cognitive dissonance. They don't think about the damaging effect that eating those foods have on themselves or their children. And they can just give their kids junk foods to cause cancer or could ruin their brains and cause a, and lower their intelligence and lower their, you know, they, so, my, so my kids never could figure out that how crazy society was when they were looking at it from the point of view was, why don't they know that what you eat makes your body? How could they be so stupid? You know, don't you know what you put in your mouth makes who you are, both intellectually and physically? You know, they couldn't figure out how people thought you could just eat it, put anything in the body and not pay a price. You know, so I mean, because it seems so logical and so it's just sensibly basic here, you know, that we're having that we're degenerating the human race and the planet because we're putting junk in, we're putting processed fake foods, Frank, you know, we call them Franken foods sometimes, but you can't eat this the way other Americans eat or you get what other Americans get, which is a, a life that's too with too high a risk of tragedy. And then eventually you have a shortened lifespan before by tragical medical problems and you become medically dependent on drugs, on medical drugs. Well, also the people that are uh, trying to do better, they're eating organic and things like this. They are still getting these chemicals that are spewed everywhere. I believe there's glyphosate in the rain uh, now. So even if you're collecting rainwater, uh, the soils are destroyed. The microbe populations are part of the species that are going extinct by these systems that have been unleashed because yeah. all that focus is on that short term that maximization that profit and not the holistic situation and you're essentially talking about realigning with evolution that we've divorced ourselves from with our kind of theologies that we are this independent machine and that we can just use things to our ends instead of understanding that we are a part of an overall system and that there are limits. You know, I don't, I've never even met you before, but it's amazing how, how much you, where the heck you, you, th you know, so much stuff and you think a lot of these things like I do. And you're, so you're a surprisingly deep thinker in these issues. And I'm, I'm kind of like very interested and fascinated that you know, all this stuff. Um, pretty well, that's cool. exactly why I've gravitated, cool. gravitated to you in the same, same, same wise. Uh, and th there's just, there needs to be more bridging with people that are changeable, that are open. But in the meantime, they are embedded in these systems as they exist. And I mean, it took years for me to graduate myself away from just norms, the surrounding norms. Yes, the surrounding norms, right. So everybody's got to, so everybody listening has got to see if they can, you know, do personally take care of their health be a better version of themselves, grow more of their own food if they have the option to do that in their own, you know, in their own homes, share, um, do what they can to support other people living healthfully, take up politically and social, in the political and social context we live, do what we can to do to positively affect other people to understand these concepts and to improve other, all the, um, and the best, and one of the things to do is be healthy, be a role model of good health, so you can emanate the, those superpowers to have a positive effect on others. Um, so this is, um, 
I'm grateful for the opportunity here to speak to you and your audience. And I hope that people got a lot of um, a lot of interesting information that they can take further, can learn more, and perhaps take this to a further the next step. Yep, and uh, we will try to hold you to having an, a, another interview in the next year here, uh, in the new year maybe. Uh, I'd love to, love to get, do that to get into more of some of these uh, uh, solutions. There is a food pantry here in town that's a standout uh, that has gardens that grows organic. Mm. It's not one of these places with just frozen meat and canned goods, which is generally what a lot of these food banks ask people to give, non-perishable. Yes. So right. everything is against freshness. Everything is for st- shelf-stable. <laughs> right. And uh, it's just uh, great that you have penetrated the, the national psyche somewhat through your PBS appearances primarily. Yes. I mean, book readers are book readers. But the average person has been a little more clued in by by getting that info and it it, it re-airing a lot actually kind of drills it in to people that otherwise kind of glaze over. I know it's amazing how many times they've showed my shows on PBS. I think they've repeated my shows in reruns so many times that I think they that they've told me at PBS that I've been on television more than Oprah has. <laughs> that's how time i'm told how many times my show has been shown over and over again over the last 12 10 years you know and did they kind of uh censor you a little bit um i mean this fast food genocide book when i came across it i was like oh this is a lot more candid this is a lot more edgy yeah. than the main thing you get i'll, I'll show you, i'll give an example of mild censorship which is so i'm, I'm on a television i'm saying i'm drawing the american food pie showing that americans only eat Two percent of calories and vegetables, and mostly the animal thirty percent of animal products and sixty percent from processed foods. And I say this diet's been designed by Al Qaeda to kill us. And they they so uh, if you watch the show, they dubbed out Al Qaeda, and they had a different voice say Darth Vader. So it says now this diet's been designed by Darth Vader to kill us. <laughs> I didn't say Darth Vader. I said Al Qaeda. That's not even they, funny, Darth Vader. They ruined my joke. <laughs> they literally put words in your mouth. Yes, put the words in my mouth because they didn't want me to say Al Qaeda. I don't know why, but um, but it's kind of funny, you know. But uh, but of course, it's, it's not a it's not as funny as Al Qaeda. So of course, they they actually um, <laughs> changed the joke. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we got to turn people away from the dark side. Yeah. All right. Well, good talking to you. Yep. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. uh, Have a great week. uh, Next next time. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.